So, if you will, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking and continuing our study through the second chapter of Revelation. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, I was thinking back to my years growing up, and each semester of school, my parents used to have to go to a parent-teacher conference. And at those conferences, they would hand out your report cards. And I remember feeling as a kid pretty nervous about those days because I thought to myself, what will my teachers say of me? What will they tell my parents about how I'm doing? Because throughout the year, my parents would ask me, how are you doing? Learning, you know, uh, are you behaving yourself? And, you know, to which I would, as most kids would, just give a glowing review and say, yes, everything is great. I'm doing well, I'm learning a lot, and I'm doing you know, all A's, you know. And uh, I would assure them that everything is going fine, but as most kids are, I was a little bit biased at times, and this is probably, honestly, too, too nice of report card grades for me. Um, because in those parent-teacher conferences, these teachers would now get the opportunity to say everything that was on their mind. They could talk about my work in their class, my attitude, uh, the areas I needed to improve in, my behavioral issues that I've caused in class, and they could just talk about anything else because they had a 30-minute block where they were one-on-one -on -one with my parents, and I would just be so terrified of the report. Would they, you know, would they say good things about me? Would they have only negative things about my uh, behavior in class? And um, as I was thinking back on the report card of my life growing up uh, in school, I thought to our church, and I, I considered the thought, what if Jesus Christ were to write a letter to us today, giving a report card, if you will, of an account of how Calvary Bible Chapel was doing? What would he say? What would he tell us are our strengths, the areas that we do well in? What would he tell us are the weaknesses or the shortcomings that we have as a church? How would he describe the work that we do for him, the attitude that we have when we do that work? What correction would he have for us? What encouragement would he have for us? It would just be interesting to hear what the Lord has to say about a specific church and his honest, true evaluation of it. Uh, but I think at the same time, it would be also very sobering to know that the all-knowing God sees my intentions, sees my thoughts, sees anything, everything else that no one else in the room can see, and he is now going to give a review of how I'm doing, how we're doing as a church. And uh, in our current day and age, we don't typically see letters written to a church uh, from, directly from God, but there was a time when Jesus personally wrote seven letters to seven churches in Asia, which would now be modern-day Turkey. And last week, we read about the first of those seven letters. We read about the letter written to the church in Ephesus. And today, we read the second letter to the church in Smyrna. I just want to remind us of, we've talked about this in the past, but there is one key verse in Revelation, and that is Revelation 119, that gives us an outline of the entirety of the book of Revelation. It says in Revelation 119, write the things which you have seen, the things you've seen is chapter one, that was the vision that John received of Jesus, the things that are, and that's the things that we're looking at today, this is chapters 2 and 3, the entirety of the church age from the time that uh, Jesus ascended to heaven up until the point of rapture. 
and then the things which will take place after this. And that's really the majority of Revelation, the things that take place after the church age. Uh, uh, Chapters 4 through 22, this describes future events. Before, though, we read the letter to the church of Smyrna, I want to remind you of three elements that are also key in understanding the letters that were written to each church. We said before that these are, first of all, timely truths. These are churches that actually existed. Each church was a real church that existed in modern-day Turkey. These were real issues that they dealt with, and this, were the, and this was the real evaluation by God of how they were doing spiritually. The second thing we remember, that these are timeless truths, meaning that though these churches existed 2,000 years ago, though these letters you know, were written far, far away from us, um, these letters are still spiritually relevant to believers today. The Lord is giving His honest evaluation of these seven churches, and in these, in these churches' evaluation, He points out the things they're doing well. And in most cases, in five out of the seven churches, He rebukes them for areas that they aren't following as well as they should be doing, or they aren't doing as well as they should be doing. And now, I don't want you to say, after reading this letter that we're about to read, well, that letter only applies to them. It has no relevance to me. This was just for that literal church back then. So no need to pay attention because we need to look at these letters and see that there is still an application for us. We need to examine ourselves either personally or as a church in totality and realize that maybe the Lord is speaking to us. Maybe there's an encouragement that he's giving us today. Maybe there's a rebuke that he's... uh, referencing to us, that we need to improve in that area so that we grow more spiritually. So as we go through these things, examine ourselves. Um, Are there areas that the Lord is touching on that we need to improve on or that we need to change as a body of believers? Because these letters are still timeless truths. They're still spiritually relevant to us today. The third thing that we need to remember is that these are timelines of truth. This is a timeline of truth that, you know, as we zoom out and look at the bigger picture of the church history, we come to find that each church represents a different historical period in the church age. Essentially, between chapters 2 and 3, we get the entirety of that timeline. Today, specifically, it's kind of hard to see, but if you do see it, we've gone from Ephesus Now we're going on to Smyrna, and that is, you'll see labeled the persecuted church. And, you know, we're not going to argue over the date specifically, but roughly it's between 170 to 312 AD is generally accepted as the dates for when this period of time took place. So today we're looking at the the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. Um, With all that in mind, uh, last week, like I said, we looked at Ephesus. Now we're looking at Smyrna. Smyrna was about a church about 35 miles uh, north of Ephesus, and it was located on a seaport city. And Smyrna was a very wealthy, beautiful, thriving city. It was a city with great trade. It was known to have a large commercial center. A few of the names that had accrued over its period of time was known as, they were called the Glory of Asia, They were also called the Ornament of Asia. So this is a pretty nice, beautiful, wealthy city to live in. 
But along with that came some very wicked practices, mainly stemming from all the way up to the government. History records that Smyrna was deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of Roman emperors. One of the famous streets in Smyrna is called the Golden Street. And on that street, they erected massive temples where they would worship various pagan gods, and there the people of Smyrna would worship them. In fact, in 196 AD, Smyrna built its temple to Dia Roma, which is the goddess of Rome, which essentially is like the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire, where they would worship both dead and currently reigning emperors. And ultimately, the, uh, the people of Smyrna were required not just encouraged, but then required to worship the Roman emperor at the time, Domitian, who was reigning at the same time that this letter was written. He was the first to demand worship, and he wanted to be called Lord. And it was said that he wanted to be called Lord because he was testing the political loyalty that people had to him. If you remember, also under Domitian, he is the same one who exiled John to the island of Patmos, where he received these visions. Domitian required every Roman citizen to worship the, uh, worship the emperor under the penalty of death. And once a year, in order to prove that loyalty, the Roman citizens were required to burn incense to Caesar, and they would erect an altar where they would do that, and then they would publicly proclaim that Caesar is supreme lord. And then upon completing that each year, they would receive a certificate saying that they did their duty for Rome, and then they would go on their way and do the same thing the next year, proving that they were loyal to Rome. So as you can imagine, this was quite a hostile environment to the church of Smyrna. They were dealing with basically the option of confess Caesar as Lord, or if they refuse to do so, they're put to death for confessing Christ as Lord. Smyrna, this lush, beautiful city, was so hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a city that would not hesitate to execute those who refused to engage in the worship of leaders as well as other gods that they had. Smyrna, like I said earlier, was often referred to as the persecuted church, and for really good reason. This was a church that was facing incredible trials, incredible persecution, and it was all ahead of them that they were about to experience. In our country today, if you were looking at statistics online about the U.S., uh, about 63% of people claim to be Christian. And, you know, I, I imagine most of this is people who are Christian in name only, meaning that they have grandparents who are Christian, so I'll be Christian, I'll go on Easter and Christmas to save face, but deep down I have no genuine relationship with God. I imagine that's what most of what our society is today. There's not a lot of genuineness to that 63%. Probably a very small portion of it truly has an understanding of the gospel and has a genuine relationship with God. But in today's day and age, a lot of people just slap the name Christian on them because of the good morals or the good, you know, saving of face that it provides. But this was not so with the city of Smyrna. If you were a Christian in Smyrna, your life was in jeopardy. Being a Christian wasn't a popular thing to do. It meant that your life would be plagued by hardship, persecution, and you knew ultimately that it could cost you your life. These believers, though, they didn't waver on their faith. They knew what their foundation was. That foundation 
was Jesus Christ, and they stood firmly on that solid rock. They stood firmly, no matter what winds blew their way, no matter what storms they faced, no matter the trial, no matter the persecution, they remained steadfast. The Lord was their strength. He was their helper in time of need. And actually, in all of the seven churches, we'll find that this was probably, probably the healthiest church. It's only one of two churches in where the Lord offers no rebuke to them, no area that he gives them as areas they need to improve on. So let's take a read now. Now that we've kind of got that overview, let's take a look at Revelation 2, and we're going to be reading verses 8 through 11. It says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Remember when we started this series in Revelation, we said that the book is called Revelation, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The key to understanding this book is to look for Christ. This book shows us, it unveils to us a different characteristic, a different aspect of Jesus. These are all pictures of him throughout the book. And so it's no surprise that when he addresses each letter to different churches, we see Jesus introduce himself in a unique way. To the church, he introduces himself as the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. You'll find that these titles, these names uh, that he gives to each individual church are actually quite fitting for the situation that they were going through. He reminds the believers in Smyrna that he is the eternal God by saying, I am the first and the last. By saying he's the first, he's saying that before anything ever was, I was the first. I precede everything else in time. I have always existed. I am the first. And I am also just the last. I am the only one, or I am the one who will exist forever into eternity. The author of the letter is the eternal God. And not just the eternal God, but he's also the risen Lord who was dead and came to life. That would be such an encouragement to a believer, particularly in these circumstances, facing death on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, here's, here's a letter as they're facing these trials, these tribulations. Here's a letter from Jesus Christ who knows what they're going through. Because as you remember, Jesus Christ also was hated. He was despised. He was rejected by all mankind. He subjected himself to the persecution and rejection of mankind. And ultimately, he wasn't just rejected, he was crucified and he died. They hated him so much that they killed him. Jesus is the one who was dead, but praise the Lord, it doesn't end there. Jesus is also the one who came to life. He is the one who rose victoriously from the grave on the third day. The church of Smyrna could take great encouragement in realizing that 
if Jesus was persecuted, if he was crucified, but ultimately he was victorious over death itself, then they too could anticipate their ultimate victory, that even in death, they still would be victorious over it. He was the one who triumphed over death, over rejection, over mistreatment. And so the believers in Smyrna could also look forward to it, knowing that even if they were killed for their faith, they would be with their Savior in heaven for eternity. We've been saying the word Smyrna a lot recently uh, in this message, but I don't know if you've thought about the word Smyrna, but Smyrna, um, the name itself, comes from a particular product that was one of its greatest commodities in the day. And you can probably guess, based upon the name, just sounding it out, Smyrna, myrrh. It's, it was a very important commodity to them. Myrrh, as you might know, is a very fragrant product. Myrrh is a gum resin that is derived from a shrub that was native to that area. And the reason I bring this up and the reason that it relates to our passage is that myrrh, interestingly enough, would only really become fragrant when it was crushed. Myrrh would only become fragrant when it was crushed. It would only produce that wonderful fragrance upon being crushed. And, you know, in the Bible, there's multiple uses for myrrh that's mentioned. In, in fact, in Psalm 45, it says that myrrh was used as a perfume. We hear in Exodus 30 that myrrh was used as a holy anointing oil for the priest in their service. But probably best known, myrrh was used for embalming the dead. In fact, Nicodemus in John chapter 19 brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 100 pounds to anoint the body of Jesus Christ for his burial. So I find it interesting that even though the church of Smyrna might have been crushed and afflicted through enduring the hard trials and tribulations they were going through, their lives were producing a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we've done in previous um, churches, and I think you know, we'll continue doing these for the future uh, ones as well, we'll begin by looking at the strengths that Jesus points out. What are the strengths that Smyrna had? We read about this strength in verse 9. It says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. With all the persecution and suffering that they were going through, it would be hard for the people in Smyrna to not feel like the disciples did when they were out at sea. And the winds were howling and the waves were crashing on the boat. And it would be hard to just not ask the question, as the disciples did, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They might have felt like they were all alone in the situation, all by themselves. But the Lord knew everything that they were suffering. The Lord knew their good works for him. He knew how they stood up, for those who stood up against those who persecuted them. How he suffered through hardship and tribulation. He knew it all. The Lord sees all that the believers go through because of their faith. And he does indeed care for them. Nothing escapes his sight. He knows it all. And what an encouragement that would be to them, that he knows our works. He knows our tribulation. But more than that, he also saw their poverty. They, they endured extreme poverty. And likely this was a result of all those who persecuted them to the point where they were either tied up in legal fees or they were just taken advantage of financially. 
They were oppressed to the point where they were absolutely broke. In the world's eyes, these believers were poverty-stricken. They had nothing to show for. But in the eyes of the Lord, they were spiritually rich. They had spiritual wealth that no one could take away. By standing up for their faith, by being faithful to God's work, they laid up for themselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus tells his disciples of the eternal riches that he offers to those who give up relationships, worldly possessions, lands, family members to follow him. He says, and everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So as far as their bank accounts were concerned, as far as the world around them was concerned, the church of Smyrna had nothing. They were completely bankrupt. But in the eyes of God, they were exceedingly rich. Charles Stanley said, There was a particular honor in being near and like Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head. And I have learned this. Jesus is specially the partner of his poor servants. Jesus is specially the partner of his poor servants. In the second half of verse 9, there's a statement where Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The persecution, as we learn through history, did not only just come from the Roman government or the unbelievers there, it also came from Jewish people as well. There were Jewish people who claimed, uh, from birth, who claimed to follow God. They claimed that God was their father, but in reality, their father truly, if you examine their actions, was the devil. Jesus very plainly tells Jewish people in uh, John chapter 8, you are, uh, these were, these were religious uh, Pharisees and different people coming to him, and he says this to them, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The evidence that these were not true Jews, not genuine believers, that their, their father was not truly God was seen in their actions. They pursued, they indulged in attempting to wipe off the church in Smyrna. These Jewish people rose up against the church in Smyrna and, and intentionally helped in their persecution. History shows that the Jews were active in aiding the persecution and the martyring of a very prominent leader in the church of Smyrna called Polycarp. And we'll talk about him in a little bit. But these Jews rose up claiming to be followers of God, but their actions exposed them for who they really are, that they were a synagogue of Satan. In most of the letters, this is a unique letter, but in most of the letters, there would be now a transition in the letter where Jesus would talk about the faults, the, um, the areas of improvement where they need to improve. But this church is so healthy, likely because of the persecution they're enduring, it's, it's weeding out all of the, the weaknesses and all the, uh, all the areas where they needed to grow probably in the past are refined through the persecution because, as we said, there is no fault found in them. They're, they're only one of two churches 
that Jesus writes to where there is no rebuke given to them. The Lord assessed them, and this turns out to be the only one of two that he has nothing to say against. So because there's nothing of fault, we move on to the next verse in verse 10, where he says, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Despite all the adversity that the church was enduring, Jesus wanted their hearts to not be troubled. He says, do not fear. He says, the devil is ultimately the one behind the persecution that you're going to face. He is the one who is persecuting the children of God. The devil hates those who oppose him. He hates those who spread the truth of God's word. And through the hands of evil men, the devil will cause the believers to be thrown into prison. He will test them through that in the hopes that they renounce their faith, in the hopes that they turn away from the truth of the word of God. The Lord encourages the believers, though, to be faithful even unto death. For the believers in Smyrna, the devil, he did his best to shake their faith. He did his best to persecute them. He did his best to imprison them, to break them, to make them feel hopeless, to make them feel alone. And and when that wasn't enough, he used wicked men to ultimately martyr these precious saints. But the believers in Smyrna could look at their persecutors face to face and say, as it says in Hebrews 13.6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the attitude that the church in Smyrna could have in the face of incredible persecution, even unto death. With the Lord on their side, even in death, they would ultimately be victorious over it. The Lord tells them, though, that they're going to have tribulation ten days. Now, there is some different opinions about what the ten days could refer to. Some people would agree that it's a literal ten days. But the vast majority would believe that it likely refers to Ten distinct persecutions under the Roman Empire from Nero up until Diocletian. And there was notably ten very, uh, very powerful Roman empires who came and they rose up and oppressed Christians for their faith. I don't have time to go, and there's entire books written about this very one slide, but just to get an idea of the kind of adversity of these 10 days of leadership that they would endure in the coming years. This details the cruelty of the oppressors ahead of them. Starting with Nero, he uh, oppressed and uh, executed Christians within Rome by feeding them to wild animals, and he also enjoyed using them as human torches to light up his outdoor party venues. Domitian was the one who exiled John to the island of Patmos, He persecuted all those who followed the Lord and even charged those who helped them with treason. Trajan outlawed Christianity and burned Ignatius, a church leader, at the stake. Marcus Aurelius tortured and beheaded Christians for their faith. Servus burned, crucified, and beheaded Christians. Maximinius made it a point to eliminate all people specifically in leadership in the church in order to eliminate Christianity. Decius openly made it a law that it is your civic duty to eliminate Christians 
in an attempt to eradicate them. Valerian also tried to wipe out Christianity by prohibiting their gatherings and uh, seizing their property and lands. Aurelian tried to implement the sun god as the only god to worship, and all others were to be persecuted. Diocletian burned the Bibles, destroyed churches, and required everyone to sacrifice to Roman gods only. So as you can see, all throughout history, and there's so much more I could say, but that is, I don't have enough time for that, but there is 10 severe days of Roman government that they would endure harsh persecution ahead of them. And the Lord tells them in advance that these godless men, men who hate Christians, men who hate the message of hope that they bring, evil men will seek to put them to death. But the Lord gives them encouragement. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And more than that, the Lord also offers them a special reward for enduring. He says in verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There are different crowns that the Bible speaks of and talks about that the Lord offers believers, but there is a special one for those who have been martyred for their faith, for standing up for Jesus Christ. God says that he will openly reward and honor those who would rather die than deny their faith in the Lord who bought them by his own blood. So the believers, to those believers, he gives the crown of life. Now, the letter in, in the, the church to Smyrna is concluded with the Lord giving them a promise in verse, uh, verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And uh, just saying, he who has an ear, that's, that's just everyone. That's me, that's you, that's everyone in the world who is listening, who reads the words that God says in this book. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's the promise that he gives. The overcomer is the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their trust in him and what he did on the cross for their salvation. The overcomer is the one who doesn't back down and renounce their faith, but instead they prove the reality of their faith by suffering for Christ. For those that are genuine believers, the Bible said they will not be affected by the second death. You see, we're all born once physically. And if the Lord does not return in our lifetime, then we will all physically die. And that is the first death. <clears throat> but if during your brief period on earth, and it is very brief, in this fleeting vapor of period in eternity, if you willingly choose to reject God and you say to yourself, I don't need God in my life. I don't want him to rule over me. I want to live my life my own way. I'll deal with him later. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed, I'll think about it and I'll repent then. But as right now, I'm young. I got many more years ahead of me. I got a retirement to live still. I don't need God right now. I want to experience my pleasures. And if you pass away, having never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, to those that perish without accepting his free offer of salvation... There is a second death that's described later on in Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15. It says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And in anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you say, I don't want God in my life, 
If you say, I don't want him, and you push off your decision, if you die having not believed in him, then God will give you the desires of your heart. You say you don't want him, well, then God will place you in a place where you will be eternally separated from him. A place where, there'll be, where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever in the lake of fire. That is the second death. Because God has no place in heaven for those who openly reject his offer. To those who love their sin so much, they refuse to repent of it. To those who love their sin so much, they refuse to receive his forgiveness for sins. If you don't know Christ today, you will not just suffer a physical death. You will also endure the second death, eternal punishment in the lake of fire for rejecting God's plan of salvation that he so freely offers you. But the wonderful thing is, is that the church of Smyrna came to know, as well as many people in this room have come to know, is that the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is patiently waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for you to turn and realize the foolishness of living a life without him, without a savior. And he's waiting for you to confess him as Lord of your life and repent from your sins. To those that know Christ as their Savior, to those that have been saved by grace through faith in what the Lord has done on the cross for them, they are exempt from the second death. Though the world may persecute you, though they may even kill you, put you to death, believers who have trusted in Him, trusted in him can cling to the promises that even in death, they will forever be with the Lord in heaven. I mentioned him earlier, just briefly, but I do want to refer back to a man named Polycarp. To those who do not know who Polycarp is, Polycarp was a prominent leader in the church in Smyrna around the time that this letter was written. There's historical records to show his, his existence as well as the things that he endured. Polycarp boldly served in the position for many years, ministering to the believers in Smyrna. But with the rising hatred for Christians and the mandate that the government in Rome had implemented, they were pressuring the people to renounce their faith, to confess Caesar is Lord or face death. And so because of all that, Polycarp, being a leader in the church, became a prominent figure who was one of their top targets. So what would this early leader do under the pressures, under the threat of being killed for his faith? Well, we read that Polycarp was arrested, and he was taken to an arena like this, where it was commonplace to have Christians arrested, and uh, they would be mauled by animals, or they'd be burned at a stake, or they'd be tortured in some other fashion, all for the amusement of the crowds watching around them. And so as Polycarp stood before the crowds, the heathen judges gave him a chance to renounce his faith. They said to him, why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense to him? But Polycarp replied, I am not going to do what you counsel me. The magistrate then pressed him harder, saying, swear the oath and I will release you. Revile the Christ. But Polycarp replied, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. 
How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with the fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Realizing Polycarp would not recant his faith, they told him that they would threaten to tear him to pieces with wild beasts. But still realizing that he was unfazed by it and would not turn back, they eventually decided to burn him with fire. But there was no struggle with Polycarp. Polycarp didn't have to be nailed to a stake. He willingly went. They decided to tie him up still anyways. But they eventually lit the fire uh, on, the, uh, on the wood, and miraculously, the, uh, the fire did not consume him. Though the fire burned all around him, Polycarp was untouched. A man, being so frustrated with the failed attempt, decided to stab him through the heart, through the fire. And Polycarp was received into the presence of his Lord, with his final words being, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And with that, Polycarp passed from this earth into the arms of his loving Savior. The faithfulness of Polycarp to the very last minute to endure, even at the cost of losing his own life, perfectly pictures the character of the church in Smyrna. The church was faithful even to the end. Even when their life was on the line, they would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ. And the question I thought after all of that is, but why? What was the motivating factor of it all? What caused them to be willing to do that? It wasn't, it's not like they personally enjoyed being persecuted. It's not like they enjoyed losing their lives. What was it about the church in Smyrna that motivated them to die in these horrific ways, being mauled, mauled by wild animals, being burnt at a stake? What was the motivation behind it? And I think there's at least two motivating factors. And the first, I believe, is, is their love for the Lord. You see, they had a relationship with the living God, the God who died for their sins. They saw all that he had endured while he was on this earth, hearing about the suffering, the persecution, him then going to and being nailed to that cross for their sins. And they, they came to have a relationship with him. And at the same time, the secular world at the time around them believed in so many gods. They lived so immorally. They had all this wealth, but they were morally and spiritually bankrupt. And that's the life that probably many of these believers came out of. They, at one point in time, came to the realization like we did, that this world doesn't satisfy. This world has nothing to offer. All the ideas and all the riches of the world leads to emptiness. And they thought, there has to be more to life. There has to be more. And inevitably, someone came and shared the good news of the gospel with them. And they came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And possibly for the first time in their lives, they came to realize how wicked their sin was. They realized how immoral the society around them was. They saw their sin for what it is. And they saw how before a holy God, they were guilty, deserving of hell. And yet they learned about that same God who loved them so much they sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on their behalf as a substitute. They learned that coming to Christ not only just brings eternal life, it also brings a purpose 
a genuine hope and true lasting joy unlike anything this world can offer you. These believers in Smyrna realized what life was like before Christ and now that they had come to Christ and realized the government is requiring them to worship a god or, a, or an emperor, a man of all people, who has no true power, who has uh, no ability to offer salvation, who doesn't provide comfort or peace or a hope. And in thinking over the consequences, they remained unmoved. They remained unwilling to go against their heavenly father and his will for their life. Because these believers were asked to worship a man. And they probably thought back to the, the, uh, the words that Jesus said to Satan when he was tested in the wilderness in John chapter 4, where Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So because they were involved, because they had a, a genuine relationship with their Savior, they were willing to be persecuted. Just as Polycarp said, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Think about your relationship with the Lord. How far would you be willing to go for him? Would you turn away from your faith because of fear about what your friends at work or coworkers or friends around you in the neighborhood or just people you come across that they might think of you as a religious fanatic or that you're strange? Would you walk away from your faith because of that? Would you walk away from your faith because there's some verbal altercation that you might come across because of someone who has a different faith and doesn't agree with you? Would you renounce your faith over verbal threats or physical threats? Would you recount your faith if you were physically harmed? Would you recant your faith even if you were required to give up your life and be burned at a stake even? How serious are you about your faith? How far are you willing to stand up for your faith? Because the church in Smyrna took a stand for Christ, knowing the consequences, and they did that because they believed in Christ and the promises that he has for believers. They feared God and not man, as it says in Matthew 10, where it says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, they didn't fear the man who could just simply kill you and send you off to heaven. They feared the Lord. They feared that they had a relationship with him. And how could they ever walk away? How could they ever turn away from the one who saved their souls. So they clung to that promise, that hope, that promise that God says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The second reason I believe that motivated Smyrna was that they had a love for the lost. They have a love for the lost souls of this world. They were all too familiar with the secularism that the world promoted, having multiple gods, multiple deities, uh, without any true hope or purpose, the church of Smyrna looked upon the world that was so lost and so godless, and they loved them. They loved them enough to share the truth of God's word with them. If I were, to, for example, driving on a bridge, and I'm driving on this bridge, and a half a mile ahead of me, I see that the bridge is out, and I stop my car, and I get out, and I realize the situation, 
you, you can bet that I would be waving my arms around and saying, hey, guys, stop, stop. Don't go there. And you're seeing cars zipping by you, going off that bridge forever into, you know, where they'll perish. And you would say to those people, you would flag them down and say, wait, hold up. You're going to die. You're going to perish if you continue on that path. Don't go there. Turn around. If that was you in that situation, you wouldn't remain quiet. You would try and do everything you could to prevent people from going off that way. The same is true with the church of Smyrna. Out of the abundance of love that they had for people, for the lost world, for the dying world, they saw, hey, the bridge is out. People are zipping on by, driving full speed into eternity with no idea that they're headed to hell. With no idea that because they have not turned from their sins, they will forever be separated from God. So they were the ones that stood at the very end of that bridge, waving people down, standing guard, telling people, repent of your sins. Turn away. Don't go down that path of following the secular world into destruction, into eternal damnation. Instead, repent. Turn to Christ and He will save your soul. They loved them so much that they were willing to give up their lives for the sake of sharing that good news. They preached the truth even if those who were, they were trying to witness to, even those who they were trying to save from destruction, did not realize it. Do you have that same love for unbelievers? Do you view them as lost souls that are zipping by off the bridge into eternity, into eternal damnation? Do you view them as people who have no clue what's ahead of them? Do we regularly speak to people about eternal things? Or do we keep it light and talk about the weather and weekend plans? Do we love the lost enough to share the truth of God's word with them, no matter the cost, no matter the rejection, no matter the awkward tensions maybe between the two of you it brings? The church in Smyrna did that. And I, as I look at them, I want to be like the church in Smyrna, firmly holding on to God's truth, boldly sharing no matter what the cost may be, because there's a lost world out there that needs to hear the truth of God's word. We know that truth. We know the truth of an all-powerful God who can save their souls. Out of love for the lost, we should boldly proclaim God's truth to all of those around us. No matter the suffering, no matter the persecution that may come, let us love to tell the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his love for the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just so encouraged by just the faith that these martyrs that this church had, that they were willing to go to the ultimate um, sacrifice for your word, for your truth, Lord. They were willing to die and, and be persecuted in order to tell others the good news. And Lord, we look at them and we're encouraged, and Lord, we want to be like them. We want to be willing to um, suffer, persecute, and even go to the ultimate cost, Lord, that we might share in their, share in their sufferings. Lord, I pray that you would... Um, just if there's anyone today who doesn't know you, anyone that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray, Lord, that they would avoid the second death, avoid eternal damnation, and would come to a saving knowledge of you today, that they would place, your, place their faith in you, realizing that, Lord, you are their only hope, their only um, way of salvation. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.